0: Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX, I'm Franklin, and this it's Berkeley
1: Groff. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science.
1: In addition, we're joined by Mr. Mark Kalmbach, who will tell us about technology on the battlefield.
0: Also joining us to tell us about vlogging is Jimmy Lynn.
1: So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Groff. So that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank?
0: Pretty good. Pretty good. Been a great week.
1: It has been. I'm, I, I haven't figured like... out
0: what happened yet, but... <laughs>
1: It just seems to go by so quickly. Yeah. It only seems like yesterday or maybe even a couple minutes ago that we were... a few months ago. Or that we were just doing nothing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Taking up space, I guess.
1: Using up oxygen.
0: Yeah. But I think there's something that everyone's been probably thinking about for quite a while. Uh, Sex? Something a bit bigger.
1: Sex with a big person.
0: No. I'm talking about weapons of mass destruction.
1: Yeah. Sex, right?
0: (laughs) Okay. I guess it depends how you... (laughs) Person. But, uh turns out the, the U.S. has been trying to destroy their own stock of chemical weapons. Oh, really? Since the 1980, actually. So in 1985, the Army predicted that it would only cost $1.8 billion to get this job done. Well, at 2001, do you know how much it came out to be? do not know 24 billion
1: 24 billion yes oh my god
0: and we are still nowhere close to finishing it wow they they think maybe 2007 Seven. at the earliest and the problem is the method they use for disposing which is primarily uh, ignition or burning it off uh-huh the main problem right now is those vx poisons
1: and uh, what are the vx poisons
0: uh, it's a nerve gas okay uh, i'm not sure what it is but it probably just disables your entire nervous system sure just like that
1: just like you snapping in the air yeah just like that for snapping all in the of air. our listeners who can't see you <laughs> snapping in the air
0: so the problem with this weapon is the casing that's used as uh, some sort of fiberglass tubing which contains lots of PCBs uh-huh. and unfortunately once you burn it off you still get a lot of PCBs polychlorinated benzoles uh, right. which are you know major pollutants unfortunately this means that it's much harder to destroy this compound one alternative they have been exploring recently is to use sodium hydroxide pure base basically to neutralize this compound but the problem is you don't get the level of Decontamination, but you still get several parts per billion of this VX uh, poison, which is right. still in residue. Huh.
1: What's the solution, then? What What are people trying to do? to? It's, it's a tough call right now. A, well, I mean, there must be another way of disposing it besides just burning this stuff up, right? Right. Well, as I said, Baring the, it, I guess, the no.
0: neutralization with the base, yeah. Yeah. but that still leaves some residues. Yeah. So they are slowly trying to get rid of it, but it's just very, very expensive.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, it's, it's an issue, I guess, for all the people out there to be wary of.
0: Right. Those weapons of mass destruction. The
1: weapons of mass destruction.
0: We're going to find them, right?
1: We just neutralize them with non 9.
0: Ah, a monostat 7.
1: <laughs> That's for an active weapon. Oh, a- st-
0: active weapon. It okay, has I'm to be sorry. active
1: at that point. <laughs> you mean a biological one? Yeah. <laughs> so people want to read more about the weapons of master. Uh
0: They can go to uh, a recent edition of Chemical and Engineering News.
1: Well, so moving on from the weapons of mass destruction to mm-hmm. double dating.
0: Double dating. Oh, wow, this sounds explosive. It
1: is quite explosive, and it's also sandy. Do you like sandy? sand?
0: It sounds rough. Different place. I <laughs> like smooth
1: things. <laughs> Oh, for all you Star Wars fans out there. No, Anakin, no. So it's apparently a big sandy surprise for some geologists who are uh, double-dating rocks.
0: Wow, is that like that super carbon double potassium thing with With, chocolate?
1: With a side order of lemon, yes. Uh, No, well, actually what they're doing is they're using radiological dating on uh, samples of rock from parts of Arizona and Utah to actually determine the composition and where it came from. So a big question is, how do these sand dunes in Arizona and Utah actually form? Uh Uh-huh. And the idea is that, well, you have all the sediment, rock sand basically that forms which eventually solidifies into these big beautiful mountainous things that you see today. And the idea is that this sand is just basically coming from nearby mountains that being washed down by some river. Right. But the surprise to these geologists using this double dating technique uh-huh. is that the sand in Arizona Utah might have actually originated from the Appalachian Mountains on the east coast. It's yeah.
0: Pretty far. It's almost 2,500 miles or so, huh?
1: That is indeed quite far away. Uh-huh. An amazing finding by geologists Jeffrey Rahl and Peter Reiners of Yale University when they actually did this technique. They saw that these grains actually match up with the profile of grains in the Appalachian Mountains.
0: Wow, but the uh, Colorado River doesn't go all the way to the Appalachian Mountains, no, right?
1: No, no, but so they're, they're suggesting that perhaps these grains got swept away by a river and then mm-hmm. picked up by wind and swept away by a river. So it's not, it's not unheard of, they say, that rivers and tides and all kinds of things carry sedimentary rock that far. I mean, right. it's what the Amazon is doing in the Andes all across South America.
0: Man, this is explosive.
1: But it explains that you know some of the rocks that you see in Arizona originated all the way from New Haven or wherever it is. <laughs> uh, and if anyone wants to learn more about that, you can take a look in the recent edition of the journal Geology. You know what, hormesis is? Hormesis. 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 Is it anything like feces? I <laughs> have,
0: have no idea, but it sounds kind of cool, huh?
1: It certainly sounds. I'd like <laughs> to. kinky, have, huh? You know, everything we have on the show is kinky. In in one way or another, we can make it kinky.
0: So here's an example of hormesis. Normal human skin cannot stand extreme temperature for a long time. In fact, it's bad for your skin. Right. But it turns out that if you heat your skin to say 41 degrees Celsius or 160 degrees Fahrenheit for an hour twice a week, it actually slows down the aging in these skin cells.
1: Okay, so hormesis is somehow the longevity of the skin cells. Is that what it describes? Uh, so,
0: so this is one example. So the example is you expose your body or some part of it to something harmful. Oh, but I see. In low doses. I see. And it turns out it's actually good for you in low doses because your skin sort of overcompensates. Right. When or, or your organ overcompensates.
1: Wasn't that the, the principle of idiopathic medicine? or something? Idiopathic or, or... idiotic? <laughs> idiotic, perhaps idiotic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is kind of interesting since it suggests that maybe we need to revise some. Guidelines for environmental standards. So, for example, you know, dioxin is known to cause cancer, right? So, you would think that the less dioxin we have, the safer it is. Uh-huh. But it turns out at very low levels it may actually be okay because your body will recognize it and compensate. It'll cleanse itself in such a way that it actually improves the overall condition of your body.
1: Right. So it's kind of like a little booster shot right. or the right. va- way a vaccine might work. Uh-huh. You know, people in, in the first world anyway with regards to disease, right. they, they have much more difficulty when traveling abroad because they're not exposed to as many pathogens. And right. So their bi- and microbes. And- so I imagine probably the same thing is true for a lot of chemical and uh, environmental factors Right. Right, this
0: could explain part, partly how why we have so much more allergies these mm, days than sure. before, because children are growing with such, such clean environments that when they grow up, their body is not acclimated to what's normal in the, in the environment.
1: Either that or we're just making a lot more allergic things.
0: And weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> That's right. So I guess if wants to know more, there's an article called Nietzsche's Toxicology in the August edition of Scientific American.
1: Nietzsche's Toxicology? Nietzsche's. Well, wouldn't Nietzsche like to say that there is no toxicology?
0: I thought it was that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Okay.
1: <laughs> so do you enjoy trans-Neptunian objects?
0: So Cool. Like, far out there, huh?
1: <laughs> it's, in fact, past Neptune, hence the term the trans-Neptunian objects. Uh, these things are the so-called Kuiper Belt oh, objects. Oh, the Kuiper Belt. Yeah, where, the Kuiper Belt. Right, we're apparently... I keep it
0: loose.
1: <laughs> You've got to keep your Kuiper Belt loose if you're, you know, dieting frequently. <laughs> or not dieting at all. It turns out the Kuiper Belt objects make up uh, a number of the uh, known comets that we see in the sky every time. They're these huge comets or asteroids that exist at the far end of the solar system, occasionally get knocked into the solar system and orbit around the sun. Right. For the first time, the Hubble telescope, under the uh, leadership of a team of astronomers led by Gary Bernstein and David Trilling of the University of Pennsylvania, have carried out the first survey mm-hmm. of very, very small trans Neptunian objects. And what they found is a disparity between the number of these objects and what they should have saw. Wow. So they were expecting to see at least 85 trans Neptunian objects, uh-huh. and instead they found three.
0: Did uh, they eat the other ones up or something?
1: Their idea is that perhaps the early solar system was very, very violent, so most of these small objects actually are pulverized into even smaller objects that they can't see. Oh, okay. And it's odd because they say it's kind of inconsistent with the number of comets that we actually see originating from the Kuiper Belt. Huh. So either these comets are originating from elsewhere, or perhaps fewer number of uh, Kuiper Belt objects is sufficient to uh, give rise to all the comets that we see. Or maybe
0: the uh, telescope needs a lens cleaning.
1: (laughs) Could be. We need another mission up there. Uh huh. But fun stuff. If you're if you're wondering where the comments are coming from,
0: I thought they were coming from you.
1: I've taken a break lately. That's why we don't see as many.
0: Oh okay. Work harder, man.
1: This is recent work published in the Astrophysical Journal, and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Mr. Mark Kalmbach will join us to discuss technology on the battlefield. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Technical innovations on the battlefield have changed the face of war. Nowhere has this become more apparent than in the recent U.S. engagement in Iraq. These advances in equipment are also affecting the lives of the soldiers using them. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Garage to give us a glimpse of the innovations changing the battlefield is Mr. Malk Kalmbach. Mr. Kalmbach is a former Marine and author of the new book, Marines on Top, by the pen name AXYCAD, where he dramatizes many of the technical situations encountered by Marines. Uh, Mr. Kalbach, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Groks.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to on any radio station that honors a fellow Naval Academy graduate such as Robert Heinlein.
1: Ah, very good. You, you know, you've written a very fascinating novel about the use of technology in the modern military. I'm wondering if you could give us just a brief interview of uh, what your book is about and
2: my book is about a squad of Marines that are equipped with some of the new technologies, and uh, they are engaged in a number of uh, anti-terrorism scenarios. And the action is specifically focused around a squad of Marines that are reinforced as the mission requires, but it's sort of focused with the sergeants and the corporals that are actually doing the fighting, that are actually involved in the situation, rather than another treatise of what colonels and generals think. So I try to get down to the guy that's boots on the ground, actually making the decisions and actually doing the engagement, and then talk about the technologies that are helping him now or that potentially could help them in the future.
1: I see. And, and did you have a lot of experience then as a Marine uh, with these sorts of situations then? That are uh,
2: certainly I was an infantry officer in the Marine Corps for a number of years, and then I uh, got involved in some of the technology integration areas that are, are sort of interesting in the last 10 or 15 years with intelligence and information management to the guys on the ground and, and trying to make it all happen in the austere te- tactical environments that we often find Marines uh, employed.
1: I mean, that's that's really one of the interesting things about book, and, of course, modern you know, warfare is that technology is really sort of influencing it. And you go into a lot of detail in your book about it. I'm just wondering if you can tell us maybe some of the uh, technical innovations that are occurring throughout the battlefield. Here.
2: Well, there are three or four things that have really had a significant influence in the last several years, certainly the last decade and less. Is one is the, uh, the advent and, and now the wide deployment of precision-guided munitions and accurate geolocation for guys in the ground, for guys in the air, and for munitions that are being employed. I'm talking, of course, about GPS and, and GPS-assisted uh, weapons and technologies. That certainly has had a significant impact on, on what we do on the battlefield, both with uh, having a better understanding of where friendly forces are as well as, as where enemy forces and targets are. So that's that's helped us a lot with the more effective deployment of troops and weapons. The second thing that we, we've heard about, and I think everybody knows about GPS, we've heard a lot about another technology that's been prevalent, but I'm not sure that it's well understood how, how widely used this is and what a dramatic impact it has on the battlefield and shaping the battle space, and that is all our uh, advanced night vision equipment. Mm. I think people saw in Desert Storm and certainly again also in, this, uh, in the Iraqi war that we tend to predominantly operate at night and that's because we have a huge advantage at nighttime over any opposing forces and it's sort of like fighting people that are blindfolded if we can get them out in a situation where there's there's very little to to no light our advantages with our night vision equipment is dramatic and certainly helps the guys on the ground first of all uh identify uh, locate and then target hostile forces that are possibly not even aware they're even in the area. That's been another huge multiplier. A third thing is, is just the way we're pushing intelligence information of any of the different intelligence forms, whether it's imagery or, or signals intelligence, that's being pushed further and further down the down the tactical chain. In fact, in the last uh, several engagements, we saw a lot of use and discussion of remotely piloted vehicles, unmanned aerial vehicles, and a lot of that video and surveillance information that's now being picked up by airborne sensors is now being pushed further and further down the chain of command, the guys that are much closer to the engagements and the action than has been in the past. That's a huge multiplier as well, because as you can imagine, if you're looking for a specific engagement or looking for a specific target or enemy, uh, having eyes in the air that are on the are on the enemy that you can also view from the ground allows you to better identify specific targets, to better identify friendly forces, to avoid some of the counter, some of the fratricide issues that we still have from time to time, and also uh, allow a much more effective uh, employment of weapons when people are sharing a common perspective and image of what's going on in front of them. So those are three technologies that are having a, a huge influence on, on uh, how we fight these days.
1: And how much more uh, equipped, then, would you say, is the average soldier is with uh, any of these technologies then, than they were, say, 10 years ago or, or 15 years ago?
2: Well, certainly GPS is, is everywhere, and our ability to put that into weapons is, has had a dramatic influence on the number of sorties we have to fly to take out specific targets. And, of course, there's an Achilles heel to GPS, and some of that came out during the Iraqi war, where there was concern that the Iraqis had somehow got through the Syrians some Russian-made GPS jammers. And certainly that's a concern now if we're going to become increasingly dependent upon GPS. What are the potential flaws in GPS or what are the potential limitations or how can GPS be jammed or defeated causes us to now rethink our dependency upon GPS and also ways around you know, potential GPS denial schemes that may be employed by a future adversary. But GPS is pretty widespread. The night vision stuff, you're seeing that in all the combat vehicles. Troops on the ground have that stuff. People in aircraft have that stuff. And it continues to get better and better. So there's been some dramatic improvements in that in the last several years, and I think that's going to be another area where we're hopefully continuing to see advancements. The stuff that's been the most dramatic, I think, in the last several years that really wasn't much of a factor in Desert Storm is the number of aerial vehicles, unmanned aerial vehicles and other airborne sensors, people that are flying their reconnaissance missions. There's a lot more of them flying. There's a lot more imagery and video that's being taken. And what we're seeing now, instead of a lot of that stuff being pushed back to large command centers, it's being pushed further and further down the chain of command to people that are actually fighting the engagements are actually involved in, uh, in attacking or defending certain areas. And so now what we're seeing, instead of me having a video up at our headquarters and telling you what I'm seeing, who's a guy actually engaged, you may now actually have access to some of that video. So now you have the perception, the exact perspective of what's going on in front of you rather than having that relayed through mm-hmm. some guy at headquarters. And that's going to be a dramatic change in the next several years as well, as we become more and more effective at pushing this information, what we call further down the chain of command. Now, the limitations there, of course, is that people that are operating in the front lines and, and are out on patrols, they're, they're in a very austere environment. It's harsh. You don't have power, so you're relegated to using batteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to carry a bunch of stuff because anything you bring in, you are, in fact, carrying, so it has to be reliable and, and, a, and certainly a combat multiplier. And traditionally, we haven't had the communications bandwidth to support these sorts of things for the guys that far down the, uh, down the tactical mm-hmm. echelons. Uh, but that's changing, and I think that those are some of, the, some of the areas that we're going to see some continued improvements in the future.
1: Uh, you touched on this, this issue briefly, um, but I'm, I'm curious. As the technological innovations become more and more dependent on these electronic technologies, I'm wondering about the security of these technologies on the battlefield. How easy are they to prevent hacking by the enemy forces?
2: Um, I really can't comment on that in any great detail. I have some knowledge in those areas, and I, I wouldn't want to say anything specific except to say certainly that's a, a large consideration mm-hmm. for all of us. You know, we've all settled our computers in, in an office someplace and been victimized by some virus or some worm or some denial-of-service attack, and that's an unpleasant thing, and certainly if that was calculated to occur at a, at a very critical tactical juncture. That would be a problem for the guys on the ground. I, I think what you'll, you'll see, though, is that the people that are deploying these, these equipments and these systems are very, very conscious of that effort. We're very concerned about pro- providing people with a capability that over time – Becomes, they develop a dependency on, and then suddenly that dependency being thwarted by the fact that that capability would be denied to them at a critical time, in, in point in space where mm-hmm. they needed that to make a decision or to help effective action. That would be a, a, a very dangerous sort of paradigm to, to enter into, and so I think people are, are concerned about that, and at look at ways of mitigating that, and also making sure that you've got you know some backup capabilities available in case you lost some uh, primary functionality. Mm-hmm. Certainly, those are are some common concerns. The Department of Defense, the networks that are used by the guys out in the field uh, are protected. They're not hooked to the Internet. You can't sit at your computer at home and immediately access (laughs) some guy who's sitting someplace in Iraq doing some tactical stuff. Certainly, those things are going to be firewalled and protected from. But nevertheless, those are always considerations. And as we get more and more of these systems out there and more and more of these nodes that are are sort of networked together, any network administrator knows, as you compound the problem by adding nodes to a network, things become more difficult, difficult to scale, and also harder to. To, to maintain security over. So those are uh, ever-vigilant battles that, that all of us face in the corporate world as well as in the military to try to prevent a, a dependency that we can't actually depend upon in a situation where we most need it.
1: Well, it looks like we're running a little bit out of time here, but to wrap up, I'm just curious, why did you decide to uh, write this novel?
2: I left the Marine Corps about five or six years ago when I went out and, and did some work in the private sector and the telecommunications world. And after 9-11, I uh, jumped back in to do some uh, Department of Defense support work. And also, of course, I was ready to re-enlist. Well, my time was up. I'm a little old for that. And probably out of a sense of pride and things that I'd been involved in and people I knew and also a sense of frustration that I could no longer be a direct contributor to some of these things, I uh, decided to pen a book that talked about some of these young Marines that were sort of composite characters that people I've known over time and then wrote about some technologies that probably aren't necessarily all here today but could be in the not-too-distant future as a sort of a stimulus for people that are reading that to think about and also to consider for possible future development and procurement. That was the motivation. Is
1: there any other works uh, coming up?
2: Actually, there is a follow-on work. Uh, what's interesting is that as you watch the, the uh, events in Iraq unfold over the last couple of months, I, I, I wrote a, a started of the second book that uh, deals with the same squad that I had in, in the first book, sort of some follow-on efforts and some, some additional surprises that these guys encounter along the way. And what would happen is I'd write up a little bit, and in, in about two months, something would be on the news that would be just about what I had written about as a fictional account two months earlier. So it's sort of interesting in this world we live in today. Things change so quickly. <laughs> it's hard to stay ahead on the fiction right. side if you're writing right. things related to military Military and international affairs to what actually happens in on the real world uh, four or five months down the pike. So that's a that's a challenge as a as a military technology uh, fiction writer. That's for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, well, Mr. Kalmbach, uh, it, it certainly is a fascinating book, and it certainly was a fascinating discussion. And I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks.
2: Thank you very much, Charles. You were just listening
1: to Mr. Mark Kalmbach discussing technology on the battlefield as portrayed in his book, Marines on Top, which is available from online booksellers. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, Jimmy Lin will join us to discuss web logging, so stay tuned.
0: welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, joining us again this week is Jimmy Lin with the tech update. Jimmy Thanks, Frank. I thought today I would
3: talk about web blogging.
0: weblogging. Uh,
3: it's becoming an increasingly popular activity. Right. And it's also, also known co- as blogging, right? Also known as blogging for short. you got to love the English language. <laughs> and blogging is essentially a web diary. Okay. So the World Wide Web traditionally has been pretty much a, a reading medium. Only a few people write to the web, and then uh, lots of people read what people put up. Right. But web blogging kind of turns that dynamic around and turns it into a read-write medium as well. Well, and people just write about their daily lives mm-hmm. or they post interesting websites that they've seen or interesting news stories that they've seen. Right. They often link to other people's blogs as well. Right. And it's starting to get a lot more press these days. People have been talking about, well, does it change journalism? Because oh, uh-huh. weblogging is not just writing, it's also publishing. Right. Your writings can reach a much larger audience mm-hmm. than they could before. So, so people have been talking about, well, now everybody's reporter... Maybe it will change the way uh, journalism is done and so on. I think it remains to be seen what the full impact of blogging will be, but I think it it does change things.
0: I understand there's some sociologists who are studying the interactions between people with these blogs. Have you read any stories about that? I
3: haven't read anything in particular about it, but you know' it'll be interesting to see how bloggers you know write about the world right It'll also be interesting to see how people view other people's blogs and that's uh, one of the uh, primary challenges about blogs is mm. for the audiences how can they find good blogs? how can they find blogs about their interests okay and how do they know how reliable a source it is. Okay. Which I think is kind of true about news outlets in general. Mm -hmm. But, you know, searching for blogs and judging them is going to be one of the near-term primary challenges. There are also quite a few applications that allow people to create and maintain their own blogs Mm -hmm. for those listeners who are interested. For example, there's a company called Userland Software, which was one of the earliest companies to create blogging software. Okay. And they have a program called radio user land. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another program called Blogger by Pyra Labs, which mm-hmm. actually just recently got bought out by Google. And so I'll oh, talk okay. about that in a second. And finally there's something called Movable Type by huh. Six Apart. And besides applications that help you write blogs, there are also the services that host blogs. Oh, okay. So for <laughs> example, UserLand hosts blogs, TypePad hosts blogs that are written with movable type. And then Blogger also hosts. Okay. blogs right. and so blogger benefits from the google acquisition because google has the engineering resources necessary to you know host mm-hmm. so many blogs on on lots of servers right. and meanwhile google uh, benefits because well, th- there's more traffic to its site, so maybe it can drive up drive you know advertising demand. Oh, okay. Also, it gets some in-house expertise about blogging, and now right. they can try out you know their algorithms about how to search blogs and and how to judge a blog's relevance, uh-huh. and so that might give them a leg up. On other search engines, and now that Google has started to host blogs, other large companies have started to take notes. So AOL is starting their own blogging service oh, called wow. AOL Journals, and Yahoo is rumored to be starting a blogging service soon. Mm-hmm. They've already reserved the domain name blogs.yahoo.com. Wow! So um, and
0: probably Microsoft as well. At some point. <laughs> probably
3: Microsoft is not going to be left behind. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays
0: out. Uh-huh. All right. Thanks a lot for the uh, the blogging report, Jerry. Okay, thanks. Hmm, strong is the force around this object, Jupiter the name it is, and this is the largest planet in the solar system. And that is the answer to last week's question of the week.
1: Yes, and thank you very much, and so we British are quite proud of our inventions, and in fact, one of our own has invented many of your common devices, in particular the dynamo, the transformer, and the direct current motor. Well, if you know who this popular British gentleman was, you can email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might get a little more spark in your life. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.